Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Dr. Zeb Hogan is a research biologist at the University of Nevada. He has a doctoral degree in ecology, was a visiting Fulbright Scholar at the Environmental Risk Assessment Program at Thailand's Chiang Mai University, and has served as a World Wildlife Fund Senior Freshwater Fellow. Seb also hosts the popular National Geographic wild television series, Monsterfish. In this episode of Anchored, I sit down with Zeb to learn more about his studies, the show, and his fascinating experiences with gigantic aquatic species. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by Giant Mouse Knives. I am proud to say that I have been using various knives from Giant Mouse over the last year or so. In fact, I use them almost daily and have one stashed in each of my workspaces for easy access. From the river, the field, the kitchen, my workshop, even my truck, their quality and craftsmanship has yet to let me down. The idea of Giant Mouse was formed over drinks one evening during a U.S. knife show in 2015. Experienced Danish designers and knife makers Jens Anzo and Jesper Vox, along with their American entrepreneur friend Jim Wirth, decided that they could build a better mousetrap, so to speak. A knife brand that could provide amazing knife designs with the highest possible production quality at a fair price while remaining closely involved with its community of customers. And so, the Danish-American Knife Company was born where it continues to be based in the USA today. Check them out right now by opening up another browser and going to www.giantmouse.com. I was born outside of Phoenix, Arizona, and I grew up in Tempe, uh, my dad was a professor, economics professor at Arizona State University. So I grew up in the desert, but I also grew up loving the outdoors and water and fish and hiking and exploring. And in Arizona, you know, it doesn't, I ended up studying the world's largest freshwater fish all over the world. So a lot of people don't understand how a person from Arizona ended up doing what I do. But, you know, in Arizona, you want to be near the water where there's water, there's life, there's, you know, um, relaxation. And so it, I just always sought out water growing up and I had a love for the outdoors, love for fish, a love for nature. And one thing sort of led to another. So I went to school at the university of Arizona and my summer job, this is kind of how it really started. My summer job, uh, 
at the University of Arizona was doing native fish surveys in the tributaries that flow into the Colorado River in the Grand Canyon. So we would drive up from Tucson, up past through Flagstaff, up to the Grand Canyon, and spend summers hiking the Grand Canyon, hiking up the tributaries that flow into the Grand Canyon, and catching fish and counting fish. Um, turns out the, those tributaries, the Colorado River, is a very different river than it was 100 years ago uh, because of dams and invasive species. So those tributaries that flow into the Colorado are the some of the last places where you see the native fish. And so that was that was my summer job growing up. That's when I realized, hey, I can do what I love for a profession. And yeah, it's just one thing led to another after that. Because you, you said counting fish. So is that what counting, you're doing yeah. for a, a job? Yeah, that was my job. I was an undergraduate research assistant for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Cooperative Research Unit, which is a fa fancy way of saying that I hiked all over the place and uh, caught and counted fish. Is that how the counting is done? Because I, I thought that they got in helicopters and and spotted fish that well, way. You, you can you can count fish. <laughs> I mean, as a fish bio, I'm a fish biologist, so you can count fish lots of different ways. Uh, we were catching them with seines and hoop nets. I don't can't remember if we did any electrofishing, but there are lots of different ways you can catch fish and lots of different ways to count them. So in this particular case, we were most interested in native species, which fish were there. There are all kinds of, you know, cool native fish in those tributaries, like uh, flannel mouse sucker and um, humpback chub, fish like that, speckled dace. And so we would catch them, we would identify the species, we would count them, we would see how big they were. And we did that year after year. And by doing that, you start to understand, okay, which habitats are important for the fish? Uh, where are they doing well? Where are they not doing so well? So historically in Arizona, and please understand, I've never fished in Arizona. I've actually never been to Arizona. It's one of the few states I have not been to. Historically, what kind of fish did they have there? Historically, so a long time ago, there were these big river native fish, chubs, suckers, uh, humpback chub, flannel mouse sucker, razorback sucker, Colorado pike minnow. Colorado pike minnow is a fish, if, if you believe the old stories, that once grew up to six feet long, weighed more than 200 pounds. And so it was a, a lot of endemic fish that are found nowhere else. A lot of the big, unusual-looking fish, a lot of them have these uh, big, bony humps on their backs. They have small scales. They're evolved for the harsh conditions of Arizona seasons and Arizona water conditions. Uh, these days, the Colorado... So I think the Colorado went from having you know a couple of dozen native fish. These days, there are over 100 different kinds of fish in the Colorado. And most of them have been introduced, including uh, at one point where I was working doing my native fish surveys, had a trophy rainbow trout fishery as well, because the rainbows love being below the dams. That beautiful clear water that was coming out from below the dams wasn't very good for the native fish, but uh, was really good for the rainbow trout. Wow, what an ecosystem. So they're able to all, they can cohabitate. Is that, I guess? They do think? not. I mean, not well, they don't. Because in addition, so rainbow trout, uh, they're also big um, catfish, uh, big carp. So there are a lot of 
exotic, you know, invasive species in the Colorado that feed on the natives. So they kind of coexist, but not happily. I remember specifically when they started calling them northern pike minnow, and um, and I think it's been pretty well adopted at this point. But we always thought that the squaw or the northern pike minnow was just a little coarse fish. I had I've never heard about this enormous monstrosity. Can you? Yeah, explain? it's the largest. It's the largest minnow in North America. Uh, so it's in the minnow family, but it's a minnow that grows extremely large it's a predator when it gets to be an adult um yeah so it's this cool very i don't have a picture on hand but um this is big native predator that grow up to six feet these days i think you'd be lucky to get one four feet i oh my god you hear stories you hear stories so i didn't realize i've gone on you know, since working in Arizona, I've gone on to really start focusing on the world's largest freshwater fish um, globally. And I didn't realize after doing this global work for several years and working on a book and working on the monster fish shows, uh, I didn't realize there was a there's a river called the Salt River that flows that once flowed uh, by my house in Arizona. When I was growing up, it was dry. It had been dammed. All the water's used for uh, other things. But historically, that river, like a mile from where I grew up, had Colorado pike minnow. So if I would have lived 100 years earlier, I would have actually lived right next to where one of these big fish occur. And, you know, big fish. So you think about big fish in North America, there's Colorado pike minnow. uh, And I'm pretty much focused on freshwater species. But you have green sturgeon, white sturgeon that are anadromous that move between fresh and salt water. And then lake sturgeon. Uh, alligator gar, American paddlefish. So there are quite a few fish in the U.S. that can get over six feet long. And some of the sturgeon, I mean, they can grow well over, the lake sturgeon get over 200 pounds and they can be over 100 years old. Alligator gar get over 300 pounds. So we have a lot of a lot of cool fish in North America. I'm excited to get to you, um, you know, to talk to you about monster fish and, and cover some of these larger species. But... <laughs> The pike minnow. I'm so sorry. Why pike? Is it, are they actually related to the pike? They, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, pike, I think refers to the body shape, uh, rather than it actually being a pike. So a pike minnow, you know, there's a, there's a species in Laos that's called the common name is a wolf barb and sometimes common it it is a barb uh it's lucio cyprinus so it's like lucio i think is you're stretching the 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 limits of my knowledge here uh but you know wolf wolf carp uh lucio cyprinus so sometimes these names can come from body shape they can come from behavior and so the pike minnow i always assume that the pike minnow it's a minnow but that looks like a pike that's where i assume the name came from but i don't really know Got it. Got it. Okay. Let's get back to your timeline here. So you graduate and you are officially a biologist. Is it that cut and dry? (laughs) I graduated undergrad in 1996. And uh, I didn't get a job after that. So no, I don't think I was quite a biologist then. Um, I, when I was working on the Colorado, I learned about 
native fish issues. I learned about endangered species issues because a lot of those native fish are endangered. I learned about the impacts that dams have on ecosystems. They changed the Colorado from being a turbid, very highly seasonable, seasonal river to a clear flowing kind of static river with lots of reservoirs. And I even had a chance, they started doing what they called controlled floods. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but they'll release out of dams to try to mimic natural seasonal flows, especially like spring, high flows in the spring. And so they released all this water out of Glen Canyon Dam just to try to mimic the natural fresh, flow fresh of it. the river. Yeah, to try to help the native fish. And so I saw them, I saw the impacts the dams had and impacts on the fish and how difficult it was to try to bring something back once the the, the river's been changed. And I took those lessons and uh, applied for a Fulbright, which is an exchange program in the U.S., um, a Fulbright to take some of those same ideas and go work in Thailand on the Mekong River. And so the Mekong River was, uh, it's in Southeast Asia, starts in the Himalayas, flows down through China, Myanmar, Laos, Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam, and then into the South China Sea, the 10th largest river in the world, 2,700 miles long, 2 million tons of fish uh, are harvested every year from the Mekong, and there are over a thousand different kinds of fish. So it's a very diverse, incredibly productive river. And they were planning to build dams, big dams on the Mekong, just like they had on the Colorado. So I sort of took the lessons that I learned as an undergrad working, doing my summer job and tried to transfer some of those lessons over to the Mekong to try to understand the impacts that these dams would have on Mekong fish and on people living over there because 2 million tons, you know, 2 million tons of food that people were getting from the Mekong. And it seemed pretty clear that if dams were built, that was going to impact the, the fish production over there. So I was, that's what I did for my PhD. I still wasn't a, really a biologist. Uh, so I was working on that for my PhD and I was studying fish migrations, trying to understand how uh, these fish would be impacted by dams. And one of the uh, groups of fishermen that I was working with caught uh, a Mekong giant catfish, which uh, can get up to 646 pounds. So I was working in Northern Thailand and working on fish migration, smaller fish species. And the fishermen that I was working with caught a Mekong giant catfish, which at the time was the world record holder for world's largest freshwater fish. Uh, and so I didn't realize fish could get to 600 and almost 650 pounds in freshwater. I was fascinated by it. That fish was killed and sold. Um, it's critically endangered. No one was really doing much research on it. And so I thought, hey, maybe this is, I was fascinated and it looked like there was a need, there was a gap in knowledge and a gap in people focusing on these big fish. And so that's kind of when I, when I really started working on the big fish. And then in 2005, so after just right after I finished my PhD, I had been kind of gradually getting more and more interested in big fish. Uh, the fishermen this, in the same area, Northern Thailand, caught a 646-pound catfish. And when they caught that fish, I just thought, you know, is this the world's largest fish? 
or what is the world's largest freshwater fish? And so I went back in their records. They had records from catching these fish back into the 1980s. They had no record of a larger fish. You know, news of the fish, the catfish went around the world. I expected to hear from other people in other places of bigger fish, but it became apparent after a few weeks that, yeah, I mean, that was the largest freshwater fish that anyone had ever seen. And that really started my interest. I thought, how, you know, where else do these big fish occur? Do they face the same threats? How big do they get? You know, who fishes for them? How important are they to the ecosystem? So I just had all these questions that really just fundamentally started with basic question, what is the world's largest freshwater fish? Does that include sturgeon though? Or is it because is it because they're anadromous? Because they're anadromous. So they're and you know it's it's arbitrary. So I for my work, the fit a fish needs to be a freshwater fish, you know, occur, live its whole life in freshwater, and be larger than 200 pounds uh or longer or more than six feet long. And those those were just arbitrary decisions that I made because a lot of work had already been done with sturgeon. So there were a lot of there had been a lot of research done already on sturgeon. Sturgeon are, you know, need our help and they're not doing very well, but they've been relatively well studied. Um, and also that cutoff of six feet and 200 pounds, like in my experience, when you're in the water with a fish that big in freshwater, at least like that, that's a big fish. I mean, that's a fish that's bigger than a person in freshwater really gets your attention. And that was a good cutoff for me because as it turns out, there are maybe 30 or 40 species of freshwater fish that can grow that large. And I just didn't, even though we were traveling around and filming, um, that was about the most, that was the bandwidth that I had um, in terms of being able, I wanted to go and visit and see each of these fish for myself and meet local people and talk with local scientists and so that was a good number of fish that I felt like in my lifetime, I might have a chance to go see all of these different fish. And so that that's what I've been doing for the last 20 years. But how did you even hear about it as a young man in Arizona? I, I was um, doing research on fish, you know, to, I was there for a year uh, as a, as a exchange program uh, in an exchange program at Chiang Mai University. So I was there kind of as a student. And my research project was studying fish migration. Okay. So I was, and I was working with these communities. And then one, one of these communities, one of the fishermen where I was working caught one of these big fish. And I, you'd also, I'd also see them in the newspaper. Like when I was living in Thailand, I saw one, I saw one myself, but then also every once in a while I'd look in the newspaper and there'd be these photos of these unbelievably large fish, because it's not just, Mekong giant catfish, the world's largest carp is also found in Thailand. Uh, uh, one of the world's largest stingrays is found in Thailand. And so I gradually, as I spent more time there, I heard, I started hearing more and more about these fish and um, just, so with that big fish, that 646 pound fish was caught. I reached out to National Geographic and I reached out to WWF World Wildlife Fund and asked them if they would provide a little bit of support to start a project to study the world's largest freshwater fish. And so that's really how it got started was with initial support from WWF and National Geographic. Uh, okay. And when was that? 
2005. Because you've gone on to have a show with National Geographic. When did that all start? The show started in 2007. Okay. So pr- pretty soon after, um, National Geographic is provides grants to researchers, usually, you know, fairly small grants. They fund a lot of graduate student work. They fund a lot of early career scientists. And that that's, you know, I was at that stage. And so once you receive a grant from National Geographic, then they also have their media division. So they have TV and magazine and all that stuff. And um, so I started doing, because I received the grant, I got connected with the National Geographic Television and started filming with them. Uh, and so the first year we did one show, they you know kind of were curious to see if people would be interested. And people were interested. This was at a time when there wasn't much out there about big fish. And so I, the first year we did one, the next year we did two, the next year after that we did four. I want to say, you know, then we did six. So the way that my experience with television is that if people watch the shows, then the National Geographic would want more. And so as long as people were watching, they kept asking for more shows. And so that continued. We filmed, uh, we stopped before COVID. So we filmed our last set of shows in 2018. And where we've been talking about starting to film again, but National Geographic uh, was owned by Fox and now it's um, owned by Disney. And so all the people that I worked with for those shows are all have all moved on. And so if we were to do the shows again, we'd have to reestablish those contacts and figure out how it would work. Right. I didn't realize that the show aired for that long. Were you a biologist practicing as a biologist at the same time as, as you're filming? And if so, where yeah, yeah, yeah. where were you working? I'm a professor at the University of Nevada. So I'm in Reno, Nevada right now. That's where I live. Got it. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. I mean, that's a, that is a full job. How are you able to manage and juggle? I would just take careers. Uh, yeah, they. So I have a very understanding boss, uh, and I would just take a leave of absence. So the most we ever the film the shows take about two weeks each to film. So if we were only filming one or two shows a year, I could take vacation essentially. Uh, that one year we did eleven shows, and that year that was basically eleven shows was basically fifty percent of the year, and so I took a six month leave of absence and just went and filmed and then I'd come back. Right. So it, 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 it was, it was wonderful and, um, made possible by, uh, a boss that appreciated what I was doing. And it wasn't, there's no, I mean, it benefit, it benefits the university. Uh, you know, we actually have a monster fish museum exhibit. That's a big museum exhibit that was traveling all over the U S that was produced by national geographic. And National Geographic just donated it back to my university, and it's now it's back in Reno, and it's, we just, it just opened last month. So the university, I mean, I'm really happy that they supported me to do this stuff. But every, I'd like to think it's a win-win. Everyone benefits. So yeah, it's a great relationship all the way around. So are you teaching full time now? I have a research position, so I've only taught two classes uh, since I've been here. Primarily, I'm doing research. So uh, I have a big research project in Southeast Asia that focused on the Mekong. And so I'm back and forth every two months, probably. Uh, So I was just there um, two weeks ago. 
I'll go back out uh, in May. So what are you researching? Uh, right now, uh, so the, the the project is called Wonders of the Mekong, and it's focused on all of the va- the many values of a healthy Mekong River. So the wonders are the one the biodiversity, the incredible fisheries, uh, the incredible landscapes, the natural the, the natural flow, the temples that are uh, on the banks of the Mekong River, um, and so. Our focus on this next trip in May will be doing some tagging of giant stingray. There's a species of two species, actually, of freshwater stingray that live in the Mekong. And we're working with local communities when they catch those big stingray. Uh, we tag them with an acoustic tag, release them back in the river, and then we can track their movements to understand the habitat that they need to survive. Right. Are they harvesting stingray for meat? Yeah, they do. So. Um, one, one of the models like for work in Southeast Asia is that we, uh, you know, the communities have been very cooperative, but we essentially, uh, they sell, they would normally sell the fish for food. So we'll pay market price, compensate them at market price. So these Mekong giant catfish that they used to cop- catch were, were only, they were selling them for 50 cents a kilo. And so it's it's a lot of money, you know. So a two hundred kilo fish, you're talking about a hundred dollars, right? So that right, yeah. So in the grand scheme of things, it's it's a lot of money for the person who catches one of these fish. But to save a critically endangered species, it wasn't that much money for us. And so we've sort of kept that model. We don't want we don't want to force, and we don't really have a good way to do it anyway. It has to be mutually beneficial. So. We compensate the fishermen and then they provide the fish. We tag it, get our measurements, our DNA sample and everything, and then release it back to the river. How does that work? That means you have to be on location with them? Yeah. So we go over, we have a team in Cambodia, about 15 people that's over there all the time, Cambodians. And then I go about, I go every two months. Uh, This next trip in May is during a period when they normally catch a lot of these fish. So we just try to time it. Everything with most fish, it's all, it's a lot of, it's seasonal, very seasonal. So we try to be at the right places at the right time. I'm actually going to be in Japan. I don't know if you have any experience with um, Sea Run Taiman. Have you we ever? We are talking about going to, fishing in Japan is actually quite complicated because of guiding issues and permits. It's not as easy as one would think. Tell me more. Yeah. Well, so we're not, as far as I know, we're not going to be fishing and I'm actually not going to probably not going to be able to go up. So these sea run taimen, they move up into streams in Northern Japan at the beginning of May, end of April, beginning of May. And we have some Japanese colleagues who uh, are taking some of us up there uh, to go see these sea run taimen. And they've said that basically, and I don't understand why this is, but the only time that you can really see them is the last week of April and the first week of May. And so we're timing this trip it, for other reasons, for personal reasons. I'm not sure I'm going to actually be able to get all the way up to Northern Japan. Um, but there are a group of, there's a group of us that are going to go up there and see them. And they're beautiful, absolutely incredible looking fish. I would love to see one. So, but there will be, there will, there will be a group up there. I don't think, I don't think they'll be fishing. There are the fishing clubs. So this is probably what you've encountered. 
I get the sense that the fishing for them is very structured and that there are fishing clubs. Each river has a fishing club and it's very structured and regulated. Very so that's regulated, probably what, yeah. yeah. So I think our, our plan was just to go up and see them. We weren't actually going to try to fish for them. See them. How do you snorkel with them? Or are you just looking at well, them? You can just see them. Yeah. You can just see them from above. Okay. So maybe they're on, on reds or something. Yeah. 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 And I've seen photos. Yeah, they're just, it's like looking at salmon, Pacific salmon. They're in relatively clear, shallow water and you can just see them. Right. Oh, wow. That's off of an island up north, right? Hokkaido. That's right. Is that where you're going or planning on going? That's where the group's going. Yeah. Right. So oh, they'll I hope be that up you can go. Yeah, it would be, it's been a dream of mine to see them. Um. I don't think it's going to work out, but yeah, I, I'll, uh, I'm going to meet. I think what's going to happen is I'm going to meet with the group right after they're going to come back from Hokkaido and we're going to meet, um, in Tokyo for some other work. But if I don't go, at least I'll get to see the photos and hear all the stories and everything. It's supposed to be like magic, amazing, amazing. Yeah. Getting up there. Also pretty good skiing. I hear, but we're a little bit late for that. Right. Right. Monster fish. If there's only 30 or 40 species that get that big, were you always limited to how many episodes you could do? You know, I didn't, I never felt that way. Um, Jeremy Wade. I was going to, that was uh, my next question. (laughs) Yeah. So he, you know, I, I, I've met Jeremy Wade. We've done events together and stuff, but any perfectly nice guy, wonderful person. Um, But the publicized reason for them stopping river monsters, I never, I never totally understood the, the the reason that was given is that they ran out of fish. Um, and that never made sense to me. Well, we never experienced that. So we did uh, 35, I think we did 35 shows, but National Geographic didn't care how big the fish were. So, oh. but, you know, for my research, I, I was, you know, I had the cutoff. I wanted to focus on the very largest fish because you know, I was, I wanted to understand what, what actually is the world's largest fish do the biggest fish out there, you know, face the same threats. I I had these questions that I wanted to ask really focusing on the biggest fish that the kind of the true contenders when we did the shows and it was the same with, with Jeremy Wade, we were, we, we could do shows on any, kind of crazy fish that National Geographic thought people would be interested in. So we did shows on Pyara, which you probably fished for with the, you know, the, like the vampire fish. I haven't fished uh, for them yet, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. They're pretty easy to fish for. Um, they're, I mean, they're relatively abundant. Like they're pretty easy to find. Uh, we've done a show on Aymara, giant Aymara, wolf fish, which is also in South America. So we've done a lot of shows. We we did a show on whale sharks. We did a show on great hammerheads. So we we've done a lot of shows that were great shows on fish that I don't actually focus on for my research. And so I never talked to Jeremy Wade about this, but I mean, there's so many cool fish out there. I don't I don't know exactly. I don't know if if they really ran out of stories or if maybe I think they did nine seasons and it was an amazing an amazing run. I just don't know if the team ran out of steam. I, if you ever, if you ever, I don't know if you've ever mm-hmm. had him on, but if you ever have him on, you can ask him. Did river monsters start after monster fish? 
It started, they started at the same time. Oh. So I think, I think, I don't want to say anything that's not correct. I, I think River Monsters pitched. So Jeremy, Jeremy is, has been doing this forever. So he had a show, I think that was called Jungle Hooks before River Monsters, but River Monsters was just so popular. Um, so he had a show before River Monsters, but that was more like a, a traditional fishing show that didn't catch on the way River Monsters did. And my understanding is that they pitched the show to National Geographic first. And I think National Geographic said no, and I have no idea why. Maybe they just didn't realize. I mean, obviously, they didn't realize how big of a hit it was going to be. And then I think they went to Discovery after. Um, so I think you, you could look online, but we we started in 2007. I, I want to say River Monster started almost at exactly the same time, and then he focused initially his most of his experience was in South America. So their first few seasons, they did a lot of shows in South America, and my experience was in Asia. And so we did our first few seasons in Asia, North America, and then kind of halfway through, like seasons three and four, we kind of switched. And I was doing a lot of shows in South America and he was doing a lot of shows in Asia. Got uh, it. So that yeah, it was, sense. yeah, it, it was good. And I mean, I primarily because of his show, his show was so popular, but the amount of awareness now I would give talks, um, you know, even 10 years ago, 2005, 2010, I would give talks at local schools and show pictures of these fish and the kids didn't know what they were. They didn't know their names. And now, I mean, if I give a, a talk and I show 20 slides of 20 different big fish, the kids know every single one. So that's pretty incredible. And it's, I think it's mostly because of River Monsters. That's still the job. Which is not my show. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. Of all the species that you have filmed, do you know which, or I guess specifically episodes, which episode was most popular with the public? They would, they would send me the numbers. So we, the, the, like the television landscape, we filmed from 2007 to 2018. So that's a long time. Big and time. The, and the shows and the shows are still on. Um, and the, I guess the couple, the two things I could say about that is uh, the giant freshwater stingray. So we did giant freshwater stingray in season two. And they told me specifically that the giant freshwater stingray episode did very, very well. Um, it, very high ratings. And that's sort of, that's when they decided to do season three. So they saw the ratings that it was much higher than they were expecting. It was like three times higher than their average. Essentially, like for <laughs> again, like this is a little bit outside of my uh, outside of my expertise. But when I when we were doing the shows, you know, they have their average viewership, and they're selling commercials and stuff based on how many people watch their shows. So they always want the shows to be higher than average if they're if we're doing higher than average then they're growing they're growing their audience they're growing the amount of money they can bring in from advertising 
And so if you perform way below average, the show is going to get cut. And if you do above average, then they start getting interested. And that Stingray show did like three times above their normal show. And so that was like, okay, we got to do another season of this. Um, So that was the one show I remember them telling me was especially popular. The other reason that Monster Fish lasted so long is that people, and I don't know why this is, I think it's probably partially because um, there were a lot of kids who watched it, but it, it would rate, so they would show the same show. That's why they're, st- they're still showing them now, um, even though we're not filming anymore. They didn't see any drop in the ratings for reruns. Oh. So people would watch the same show again and again and again. Um, and that also has a lot of value. Big time. That's and so normally, yeah. yeah. So normally you see a show and the first time it airs, it does well. And then it gradually kind of goes to zero. And with Monsterfish, what I was told is that it, you know, might not have been stellar. It might not have been incredibly high the first time, but then it was just steady. So they keep showing them now, like they're still on TV now. And these are some, you know, some of these shows were done five or maybe even 10 years ago. And I still get emails from people all the time, you know, uh, asking me a question or telling me something about the show, which is great. I love it. But, you know, it's something that we did 10 years ago. So I think it's cool. It's, it's like evergreen. Why do you think that that episode in particular was so interesting? Is it an element of fear? I, you know, they, they get really big. It's, it's an unusual fish. It's dangerous. People don't realize they occur in freshwater. Um, you know, I don't, you know, Jeremy Wade hadn't done it yet. Like, I, I think it was a new fish. It got, you know, a big, hard to catch, a lot of drama in, in trying to catch one. Then when you catch it, you have to be careful. They look, I mean, I'll send you some photos, but they're, I mean, they're enormous. They're absolutely enormous. You're talking five, 600 pounds. Um, and they look, you know, they're the same color as the water. So you can't see them until right at, you know, right when they come to the surface and you're expecting something that's, you know, what you're, what you get is bigger than what you're expecting. So you think of some kind of UFO start to just kind of exactly. Yeah. Yeah. How many people step on them? When when fishing, because I know in, when I in, in South in, America, well, yeah. in South America, and in on the coast, so San, San Diego is notorious for people stepping on stingrays, coastal stingrays, and in the Amazon, people they, you know, tens of thousands of people step on them and are injured every year. These big freshwater stingrays in in the Mekong and in Southeast Asia, they're not as common. They're, they get really big. They're so big. I mean, obviously, they have to grow from being smaller. But they're so big that by the time they're six, seven feet across, like even if you stepped on one, which you probably wouldn't, it wouldn't be able to sting you because it's just so big. Well, that's what I so was wondering. One... Would the stinger put off? I'm just picturing this yeah. horrible alien no. scene where the stinger basically skewers the person and you're, you know, drag downstream and no they they don't the the smaller stingrays are much more dangerous okay uh because they they feel easily threatened their body size the sting like if you step right in the middle of one they can 
they, they basically curl up their body and the, and the barb is at the base of the tail. So they'll, they'll twist around and they sting you with the big ones. I mean, the, you just, you'd have to step right on the, right on the barb to get injured. Oh, just so they not, can't twist and torque I mean, their body to get up to the middle. Not in the same way. People, you know, people still get injured, but 99% of the people who get injured are people catching them. So no one, the, when you're in San Diego or Florida or the Amazon, it's people walking and they don't see it and they accidentally step on it. The only people getting injured in Southeast Asia by stingrays are people who are catching them and then not, not being as careful as they should. Coming up, Zeb and I continue our conversation. Thank you again to Giant Mouse for their continued support and for making this episode possible. Giant Mouse knives each have their own unique design with Scandinavian influence. But the best part? They are truly made to be used. The proof is in their premium blade steels such as LMAX, 20CV, M390, S90V, and MagnaCut for edge retention and corrosion resistance. One of my favorite characteristics of each of the Giant Mouse models is their durable handle materials, such as the canvas micarta, which has proven great for gripping even in wet conditions. I could obviously go on and on about why I love these knives so much, but I will let you see it for yourself at www.giantmouse.com. I had seen a YouTube video. I don't think it was doctored. It looked pretty real. Um, I think they were somewhere in Asia and there was the biggest black snake I've ever seen. I'm assuming it was an anaconda. Is that something that you had to seriously worry about? No, no. So, and, and people, I mean, you, you, you love fish. Like people do, you know, they see photos of the fish that I study and they'll say, I'm not, you know, I'm never getting near the water again. That's the, that's the reaction. And almost without exception, these fish are harmless. Like even so alligator gar, scary looking fish, lots of teeth. It's harmless. Um, stingray, the, especially the big ones. Like when I say harmless, I mean, if you're not handling one, if you're swimming, there is a 0% chance that one of these fish is going to hurt you. The only dangerous the two the two encounters I've had um, where fish have been dangerous, or not even fish, um, are uh, saltwater crocodiles. Yeah. So saltwater crocodiles in Australia are legitimately dangerous. They will attack people. They who are just walking are stel- on the, the beach. Yeah, by the way, they're I stealthy think- predators. Yeah, yes. So they they they, they view big things moving on riverbanks as food. So they see humans as food and that's very unusual in animals. Like not very many animals see humans as food. So saltwater crocs, when we were filming in Australia, we had to be like legitimately careful about saltwater crocs. The only other, the only other fish, um, Oh, bull sharks. So, and, and, and I'm just going, I don't, I'm not a bull shark expert, so I'm going off of what other people are saying. The bull shark scientists, um, when a bull shark gets above about six feet, and especially if you're in, if it's getting dark or if you're in turbid water, I've been told that you need to be careful about bull sharks. Bull sharks, um, you know, are a little bit more aggressive. A shark over six feet can take a pretty good 
chunk out of you. So I've also like, if we're swimming around bull sharks and it's starting to get dark, we get out of the water. If we know they're bull sharks, it's not, if it's turbid water, you know, so we've been a little bit careful about bull sharks. Trying to think if there are any other fish out of like the 30 giant fish, you know, sturgeon, harmless, alligator gar are harmless. Um, the catfish, the carps. I feel like there was one other, one other fish we had to be a little bit careful with. But anyway, I, I, I understand. Oh, so gooch, the gooch is an interesting story. So do you, do you know what a gooch looks like? No. A gooch is a, a catfish in India. It's in uh, the Himalayan foothills. It's a catfish that can get up to 10 feet long. It has I'm fleshy. Googling it, by the way. You, right you should Google it. Yeah. So fleshy barbels, beady eyes, camouflage type skin, mottled uh, black and brown, really big teeth. And it is, people tell stories about gooch attacking people. Um, I was swimming with, for the show that we did, I went swimming with gooch in turbid water below. This is kind of a weird story. I'm not exactly sure how this came about, but we were in a, in a pool on the Ramganga River, and it was below like a butcher's shop or something i'm not exactly sure how this happened but the whole river bottom was filled with bones and i went in the water and all i could see it was like murky but i could just see just bones all across the bottom of the river and i heard this weird like noise clinking noise and uh i realized after a while it was the sound of gooch moving through the bones uh they were making the bones clink together as they kind of swam through them and even in that pool like the goons were like four feet long even in that pool i didn't feel you just have this feeling like i felt it with saltwater crocodile i felt it with bull sharks there's just like this feeling you get when it, things start to get dangerous. And even with those gooch, I didn't get it. They they just seem more like a fish. I don't, it's hard to describe, but I, I'm not like a, a pure angler, but I fished enough. Like you, you just, I feel like you develop a sense for what's dangerous and what's not dangerous. I mean, if you hook a big shark, you try to bring a big shark into a boat. That's dangerous. Um, these gooch somehow they they still seem like fish to me, not something that was going to eat me. Fun fact: we've got bull sharks in our rivers here, down here in Australia. So even if a river is only seven feet wide, some of our bass fishing has got bull sharks in it. It's it's just surreal for me as a Canadian girl. But I'm looking at these gooch now. Do they have teeth? Oh yeah. Yeah, they have uh, like nail-like teeth. So a big gooch could have teeth probably an inch long. If you if you Google, maybe Google gooch teeth, yeah. and you could see. Do so they... a big. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. They can be. They'll very aggressive. Uh, you know when they take a bait. Oh yeah. Yeah, they have big teeth. Oh, so what? What's the story with the butcher shop then? Were they just ridding of carcasses that way? Yeah, I mean I, they were cleaning. I mean they were throwing the bones, the clean bones into the river. And then I think that attracted the gooch. 
Right. Oh, oh my gosh. Okay. So then in all of your years of filming and all of your species of, of studying and, and filming, which was the most surprising to you? Was there one in particular that really knocked your socks off? Well, uh, just to, <laughs> just to get back to the goon or to the stories of fish being dangerous and goon. So one of the interesting things about doing the shows, and this sort of answers your question, but one of the interesting things about doing the shows is that the cameraman always had to get in the water before I did because they have to film it. And so every time someone got hurt, and I kind of laugh about this, it's no one got seriously hurt, so it's funny, but like there's always a cameraman. So the, their camera, our cameraman got shocked by an electric eel. Um, one of the people that was helping with filming got bit on the finger with by a bull shark. Um, one of the guys got finger. That is yeah, yeah. Well, he was handling something when we were filming the hammerheads. The hammerheads would come in and kind of bite at the cameraman's fins and stuff. So the cameraman he can't pay attention. Like he's it's very cameramen get very focused on filming, and I mean that's their job, and so they're not watching what's going on around them. And so it usually was always the camera men that got bit or whacked or whatever. Um, so that, I mean, and, and no one got seriously hurt, but we had a camera cameraman who got shocked by the eel and he, he was filming and then he just slumped over in the water. And we, it's, it's so silly, but we didn't, we're like, what, what just happened? We're filming. We're, we're filming elect like, electric eel but it just didn't i mean you talk about something that surprised us even though we were filming something that we knew could do that we hadn't seen it and the eel shocked him and he slumped over he didn't he was confused he didn't know what happened we didn't know what happened and then of course like we thought about it for a few minutes we're like i mean we're filming these things he just he just got shocked what's the voltage on one of those like six or seven hundred uh volts so they're they're pretty it'll stun you. I think you'd have to be you have to be pretty unlucky to be seriously injured, but the fishermen there will do contests where they'll both put their hand like in a bucket with an electric eel and see who pulls it out like the first their hand. I I I, I, I never tried. <laughs> no, I wouldn't either. What about in America? Apart from sturgeon, what other species were you able to find near home? Well, so green I mean green sturgeon uh, are very close to where I live. Even I'm in the desert. I'm in the high desert, just near Lake Tahoe. And we have green sturgeon and white sturgeon within like a hundred miles of where I am right now. So people, that's another thing about these big fish is that I think a lot of times people don't realize we were talking about all these faraway places, but these big fish occur close to home as well. Um, alligator gar and American paddlefish, uh, are coastal and Mississippi drainage. So you'll actually get big paddlefish all the way up into Montana. Oh, I didn't and know And I that. would guess, I would guess probably even in Southern Canada. Um, yeah. So one of the healthiest populations of American paddlefish is in the upper Missouri and in the Yellowstone. So beautiful rivers and they're like free-flowing rivers that's why you still have such healthy populations so you get these dinosaur crazy amazing fish with these long 
snouts and they they feed like a basking shark and you get those fish up in far north northwest central u.s and i would guess up into canada and then lake sturgeon are all through the great lakes populations have declined a lot but lake winnebago which is in kind of north uh, northern wisconsin has really healthy populations of lake sturgeon what about and the then right there's a oh go ahead well, I was going to say, uh, is it the St. Clair? I should. I, I don't have access to the internet right now, but I want to say it's the St. Clair River. It's the border between Canada and the U.S., and it connects two of the Great Lakes. Actually, has a really he- healthy population of lake sturgeon as well. Have you heard that historically they used to tie sturgeon up, cut chunks of them off for meat, and then the sturgeon would regenerate? The meat in captivity. That, that, it's a that, excuse me. I got Sorry. a little cold on my vacation. Uh, yeah, so you hear that story a lot. I, as far as I know, that's you know it doesn't happen. There's a famous story in Mongolia about giant trout oh. that a fisherman um, gets stranded over the winter, and he catches a giant trout and cuts pieces off of it all winter to to survive. And then in the spring, when he's finally able to get out of where he gets stuck, he lets the trout go and it swims away. So it's a similar similar True. story. True or no? What do you think? Is it even possible <laughs> biologically? No. <laughs> not, not, not true. Did you have to debunk any of that stuff on the show? We, you know, we don't... The show, you know, and even the book. So we just finished a book on this these the same topic but you know we always all the shows were fact checked so national geographic has a, a like a fact checking uh division and the book was we made sure everything in the book it's a non-fiction book so we made every sure everything in the book was was factual so rather than debunk it just wasn't our approach so we made sure everything that we were presenting was true but I'm trying to think of an example. I mean, in terms of debunking, it's just like the whole premise of what I've been doing. You hear so many stories of big fish, big fish below dams, big fish that people catch and take chunks off of and then release. There are so many stories out there of big fish that like the whole premise is to go out, meet local people, meet local scientists and verify you know, like personally, because it was clear from the very start, you can't rely on the stories because the stories are just, um, yeah, a lot of times they're just that. People love telling fish stories and people have been telling fish stories for hundreds of years. There's a a famous photo in Thailand uh, of a serpent-like fish. You see this photo in restaurants and um, barbershops and all throughout Thailand. And the it's a fish about 20 feet long, looks like a serpent. And the photo is labeled Naga, Queen of the Mekong, American Military, 1973, Laos. So it's meant to be a photo of a mythical, like serpent-like Naga the creature. Loch, the Loch Ness Monster photo that we've all it's, seen? It's, it's, no, no, no. It's it's their version of the Loch Ness Monster. Okay. So a, a Naga is a mythical serpent-like creature that you see carved in temples in Southeast Asia. So this was a photo of a real Naga uh, that was 
um, supposedly taken during the Vietnam War. Uh, but someone did some more research, and it turned out that that photo was taken in 1991 in San Diego. Oh. Uh, and so it's, but but it's a, the thing like you're talking about de- debunking, like it's a it's a real fish. It's called an oarfish. It's the long the longest bony fish in the world, and that fish washed up dead in San Diego. Some military guys, U.S. military, were out for a jog or whatever, picked it up, took a photo, and then someone relabeled the photo. They took it from color to black and white, relabeled it, and sold it in Thailand as something else. So there's a lot of that. Uh, you know, that, 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 that was never the point of any of this work. But if you're looking, I've been, you know, I've been on this, the search for the world's largest freshwater fish. You, you, you can start to tell, you know, you, you can tell whether or not if there's a photo, like a, if there's a photo with real facts, especially if it's like someone, a name I recognize, then you, the chances are it's true. But if it's a kind of grainy photo or the facts aren't quite right or, um, and anything, any stories I hear, I just follow up and usually pretty easily you can get to the bottom of it. Do you believe in the Loch Ness monster or any other species that maybe we haven't found yet? I, I don't. And the, I think there's, I think there are big fish out there that we haven't found yet. But the reason that I don't believe in the Loch Ness monster is because I've seen, like, I've seen all of these real life Loch Ness monsters. So in my mind, these are the true Loch Ness monsters. And I know, like, where was I recently? I was somewhere. Where was it? It, it, it happens all the time. So we'll get a big fish. We'll catch a big fish and we'll bring it to shore. And all of the people who live in that area will come around and they'll say they've never seen it before. So these fish are so rare and so unusual, so big that even people living along the rivers where they occur have never seen them. And so it's very easy to imagine where these stories come from because a Wells catfish can get nine feet long it moves through the water like a like a serpent um the stingray can get you know five meters long and as big as a big cable so these like these creatures like the loch ness monster are out there so i definitely believe in that but i think that's probably what people are seeing are these things these unlike you can't the size of them like doesn't compute. And so people, people don't know what they're seeing. Yeah. And so they might call it the Loch Ness monster. It's actually a real thing, but maybe called something else. Right. The, the, the gooch in India, you know, this is a, a camouflage, uh, absolutely like alien, catfish with fleshy barbels and big teeth it's the same color as the water it's a you know hangs out in these areas with rapids and deep pools like and people never see it you know what do you end up 
calling it. There are all of these stories in India and and, and uh, where the Gunch occurs of these stories of mythical, I forget what they call it. But they have all these names for water monsters in the same area where the Gunch occurs. And so you have all these, and then in those same areas, you have uh, crocodiles and stuff. And so the animals are there. And I think people sometimes struggle to understand what they're seeing. Yeah. Makes You've sense. never seen it before. Two weeks of filming per show is a lot of time. It's actually more than I would have expected. So how much of that time are you actually fishing? That's a good, it depends on the, on the show. And it, you know, some species, you can't fish for them with rod and reel. So like, um, try to think of an example, short tail river ray. So there's a, the largest species of fish in South America is probably the short tail river ray. It's in the Paraná river in Argentina. Mm-hmm. I fished it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, same place where you get Dorado. And uh, there, the, the only way that we knew to catch those was with rod and reel. And so we spent 80% of, you know, probably 10 of our 14 days fishing. And we were lucky enough to get a big one. But you never know. Like, you don't know what you're going to catch. So we got lucky on that show. Um you know, hammerheads, we fished a little bit, but hammerheads, we were mainly working with scientists. We weren't out r- fishing with recreational anglers. There's saltwater. So you, were, you were in the salt saltwater. fishing for it? Yeah. Okay, yeah. got it. Yeah. Yeah. Monster fish, we kind of do whatever. Right. Um, so we were working with other researchers and we had, I think we caught one on like rod and reel, but mainly they use these big, have you seen them use the big trot lines? It's like in Jaws. They have these big lines that are attached to barrels. Oh. And so they throw a big bait that's attached to a barrel and then the shark eats the bait and drags the barrel around. Oh, cool. It's, I mean, it's a real, like, it's exactly like what to do in Jaws. Um, and yeah, so we're, we're fishing maybe half the time. It just, it really depends if we, like with alligator gar, what wells catfish, alligator gar, there are some fish that you're pretty much, if you go out for a week, you're pretty much guaranteed to catch some. And if we're fishing for one of those, then we won't fish as much because we we know, like as soon as we catch a few big ones, then we might focus on other elements of the show. Right. But for fish that where we don't know, I mean, that short tail river ray, a lot of these shows, we like we catch them right on like on the last day, and so we just have to fish and fish and fish. Um, Were you skunked? Have you ever been skunked? We got skunked. So we got we did a show on uh, the fish migrations because I get I get distracted. Like the show is called Monster Fish. We almost always have a fishing like a rod reel element to it but i there are these amazing fish migrations over a waterfall in the mekong river there's a big waterfall on the border between cambodia and laos and there are these amazing fish migrations where fish 
the the waterfall is all it's like a thousand different channels of all different heights waterfalls and the fishermen that live in the area make all these crazy traps and nets it's just the most amazing like natural system that you've ever seen with thousands and hundreds of thousands of fish trying to navigate up this waterfall and if you're there at the right time of year there's just you know so many different kinds of fish being caught you'll just piles of fish and every different way of catching them and it's just an amazing like natural spectacle but it didn't make a very good monster fish show because there was no way to fish for them i was i got to i i wanted to do a show because it just was one of the most amazing things i'd ever seen in my life but the monster fish format, you know, Jer- Jeremy Wade takes this to the extreme where it's him, like he goes out, he has his gear and he disappears, you know, with the camera crew following him. And it, he's, he, he's going to catch a fish. Like that's the number one goal. And monster fish was always about, you know, learning about where the fish occurs, talking to local communities um, providing a little bit more background but that Laos show it was like one of the most amazing places I've ever been but it just didn't translate very well into a show because there was there was no drama big fit there well there's just yeah it was it was fascinating and amazing It, it works much better for like a biologist uh, there was no, there was no like big fish to catch at the end. So I'm trying to remember, trying to remember how that show ended. We actually went with a team of American kayakers, and they kayaked down some of these channels to try to kind of help understand where the like which channels were navigable and where the fish might be moving. Um, and so the show had, you know, it had drama and stuff, but I, it just didn't have like the almost all monster fish and with a big fish at the end. And I, if, you know, you asked if we got skunked that, that show comes to mind as I think the only show that we did where I don't think we had a, a big, a big fish at the end of that one. That is, that's actually very impressive for how many years you were filming with the book. Have you written the book? Is it your name on it? Yeah. So hold on. <laughs> so I would have sent you a copy, but you're, you're international. I'm far, uh, yeah. Oh, wow. So it exists. It's available so it's, now? Well, so it is it is available now. It's officially out April 25th, but it's available now on Amazon. It's called Chasing Giants in Search of the World's Largest Freshwater Fish. And so it's kind of 20 years of traveling around and looking, learning and looking for all of these big fish. Uh, so it took about 10 years to write. It was a lot of work, but it's very... Uh, you know, very happy to finally have it done. And I think it turned out really well. Oh, I'm going to have to take a closer look. But that means now at, at 49, going into 50, you ha- you're a biologist, professor, author, television presenter. Are you going through some sort of, not a crisis, but some sort of transition in your life where you're wondering where your future's going for the next 10 years or so? I, you know... <laughs> I th- there's always some of that there 
I don't think about it that much because I would be very happy if I can keep doing what I'm doing. You know, I wish that there were a hundred more people focused on these fish that I work with. Um, There's much more that needs to be done. Um, So I would be very happy if I was able to continue this type of work for as long as I can. Conservation work. Conservation, yeah. Research, yeah. So maybe not so much the TV shows and stuff, but going out, you know, trying to help understand and protect these fish that that definitely need our help. So in that sense, I mean, I think that's why I don't, I know that there's so much work to do. Um, I, I guess I don't make it that personal in the sense of exactly what I'll be doing. You know, I'm going to be out in the field or writing or filming, doing something to try to learn more about these fish than we know now or try to raise awareness in some way. And the, you know, the book, I, the it's really nice to have done it. When, as we were filming monster fish and doing this work, there was always an idea in the back of my mind that I wanted to tell the story in a different way because monster fish, we just, we just scratched the surface. We were focused on one fish. We have 48 minutes it needs to be kind of an adventure. It has to move quickly. So you can never really take a step back and tell anything more deeply. And the same thing with the museum exhibit, you, we're limited by the space that we have, the physical space. So there are these big sculptures and big photos. So you just can't fit, fit that much in. So the book was an opportunity to tell all of these stories, like in one from beginning to end, the whole story and so that was, it was really, it was really nice to get that done. And so maybe what comes next is it, it could be another book, um, possibly more shows, but definitely more research. Uh, that That's my primary occupation. I really love it. So I definitely, there'll be more research and travel in my future. On that note, and I know we don't have too much time left, but as far as the conservation aspect goes, what are you finding is your biggest problem or obstacle right now what is the what is the biggest conservation issue that that's a good question and i'll and i'll answer it two ways these fish almost all large freshwater fish are at risk of extinction and it's primarily habitat degradation habitat fragmentation a lot of times from dams dams are a a big issue because they block migration routes they change water quality they mess up spawning cues and things. So dams have been a big problem all around the world. Uh, pollution, overharvest. So those are, the, those are the primary threats. And big fish pretty much universally face some set of those threats. Migratory fish, maybe a little bit more with dams. Uh, and then you have fish like sturgeon that get it from every direction because they're migratory they are driven to extinction by dams and then they also are carrying caviar. So they get hit really hard with over harvest. They live forever. They don't um, reproduce until there are some species until they're 20 years old. So they have to live until they're 20 before they can even start reproducing. So there are a lot of, a lot of threats out there. Um, I would flip 
you know, flip it a little bit and say the places I've seen where these fish are doing well are places where there's a group of people who have, you know, learned about the fish, who are informed about the issues and who are taking action to protect the, the fish and the places where they live. So as examples, you know, Lake Winnebago with the Lake Sturgeon, that community there, they've been managing that fishery really well for 50 years. There's a state agency that's really invested in that fishery. So people are aware of the sturgeon, they care about it, and they're doing a good job protecting it. And they're really in it for the long for the long term. And that population has really benefited from that attitude. Um, in South America with Arapaima, there are communities that have said, hey, we're over-harvesting our Arapaima. We're going to set up conservation areas, small, no fishing areas. And there have been a lot of success stories with Arapaima recently at a community level of those populations coming back. In Europe, there's another species of giant trout in Europe uh, called a huchen or a huchen. I can't pronounce it in in, uh, in German. But there's a, another giant trout there, and there are local fishing clubs that protect certain stretches of river. And so you get um, protection of giant trout. So the one, like the big, one of the big takeaways from all of this work is that the fish, you know, need people to know about them. They need people to care, to take action. They need champions. And that doesn't always happen at a huge scale. Sometimes it can happen at a smaller scale, but it, in places where that that's occurring, the, the those are the places where I see the fish um, doing well and surviving. There's actually a cool story just in the last few weeks about the Viosa River, um, which is has just been declared the first national, like river national park. So it's a national designation specifically to protect a river and keep it free flowing. And so those kind of models. You hear a lot about dam removal these days. So, you know, creating protected areas that specifically are protecting rivers, removing dams that are obsolete so that fish can move into areas where they've been blocked from for a hundred years. So there are some, there, there's, there, there's reason for some optimism. And, that, and in the book, for example, we, we start off, introducing you know what are these big fish where do they occur the diversity the evolution moving on to threats and uh, and all of the challenges which there are many challenges and at the end talking about solutions and why there's reason for optimism and what we can each do to help keep these fish around for future generations in your experience do you find that it's government guides or economy general community or clubs who are the most effective at change or at providing change? I, I think it's a mix. I mean, I think you need in the, in the U S um, at least it's a shame when those groups can't find a way to work together. Um, I see less of that other places. So having community support is essential. Uh, but the best case scenario is when those people were at odds much more than we need to be and we should be. So I, I, I know it's a, 
I'm not totally answering your question, but I, okay. I think the, be- the best case and where I've seen it, the outcomes be the best is when those groups are all working together. And I don't think that's an impossible request. Um, you know, there does state and government can sometimes be at odds with guides and with people who are, you know, fishing for food or for money because, you, you know, government actors are usually more concerned about regulations and um, guides and fishermen want to be able to fish. But certainly if we can all get on the same page, it's going to benefit, benefit everyone. Yeah. I don't think that's a cop out to that question at all. I think it's bang on. Um, well, look, I'm going to wrap it up and let you get back to your night. I'm so thankful we were finally able to sit down and connect. Uh, before I let you go, is there anything that I've missed that you would like to add? I don't think so. I appreciate your time. I appreciate all that you, you've you done for spreading the word about fish and fishing. I appreciate your enthusiasm. So, uh, When are you coming back to British Columbia? Yeah, I, I'd like to come back soon. I mean, we're trying to um, do a little bit of a book tour. And uh, um, the Fraser is the best place, as far as I know, best place on earth for white sturgeon. And so I'd love to come back up there and get out on the river. And um, yeah, it's, I feel like I'm overdue. Yeah, big, oh, I love the, I used to guide on the Fraser. Um, well, keep me posted on your travels and maybe we can actually meet in person one day. Yeah, that'd be amazing. Thanks so much. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Tune in next time as I sit down with Tenkara expert, Karen Miller. Thank you for listening.